Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music this morning. And welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We just read in our service a few minutes ago, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which is a beautiful verse on what I'm going to be speaking on today, and that is assurance of our salvation. Now, what I'm doing in four messages starting last week, salvation and security of our, of our salvation last week, and then this morning I'll speak to you on assurance of our salvation and tonight on evangelism and what we do with our salvation. So we're talking about assurance, and of course our verse said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We should be able to know that we have it. A few things that uh, we need to keep in mind. Number one is you, you can be saved, truly born again, and not be sure about it. It happens for a number of reasons. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. Now, let me also say, you can be unsaved and be too sure and think you are saved. And so we'll deal with that a little bit also. We ought to understand, Christians, that Christians sin, and we can sin as believers. And many times when sin does enter into our life, especially in any prolonged fashion, we have doubts uh, that arise, and we have to deal with those doubts in the way that we should. But, but one thing is for sure, having salvation and not having assurance of it is one of the most miserable states that you can be in in life. Only believers would know that, but to be truly saved and for some reason think that you're not or some reason think that you lost it or whatever is a terrible condition and it's unnecessary. Think of it like this. Paul, Paul when, when he was describing the armor of God, talked about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. I like to think of that helmet as the assurance of your salvation. Think of a soldier out on the battlefield where you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords and shields and spears and all of that, and you don't have a helmet on. <laughs> you know, I, think about the way it would be this afternoon when, when the Chiefs play and, and Patrick Mahomes is out there, and he doesn't wear his helmet today. He's just going to have his bare head out there. Uh, what, what would a guy be doing in a game like that if he doesn't have a helmet on? I'll tell you what he'd be doing. Ducking. <laughs> and he'd be, he, he would be doing everything he can not to get hit in the head. And a Christian that doesn't have assurance of salvation is always ducking and dodging the truth. Doesn't want to hear a sermon doesn't want to hear uh, about this, doesn't want to be under conviction, but he is, and it's a miserable way to be. Now, it's, it's not unusual for doubts to arise uh, because a new believer, especially a new believer, uh, doesn't know much, doesn't know much theology. Consider, for example, a child, and children can be saved. I think uh, we see children very early at four, often at five, six years old, uh, come to faith in Christ. You may have led your children, I did, to faith in Christ at, at that age. But what does a child know? He doesn't or she doesn't know much. And so there are feelings, there are fears, there are imaginations that come up in a, in a child's mind and heart that brings them doubt. Not only that, but an adult thinks as an adult. <laughs> and so an adult thinks in logic 
and in conditions and, and uh, contradictions and those kinds of things. And, and he or she begins to think, well, for this reason, for that reason, I don't think I could be saved. You know, there's all that. Or take a dying person, a dying Christian even, man or woman. Uh, there's some urgency to their feeling. They uh, need to reach back into their soul and heart and say, am I truly ready to go out into eternity? And so there are many reasons uh, that are usual in people's lives where they can doubt. I have kind of a testimony in this way, and, and you might have also, but it illustrates what I'm talking about. Uh, at nine years old, and by the way, I grew up in large churches, both uh, where my grandparents lived in Springfield, where we lived up near Cincinnati, uh, huge churches, thousands of people, and they were gospel-preaching churches. They gave invitations for people to come forward and be saved, and, and they were soul-winning and, and so forth. I loved it. I grew up that way. But I remember at nine years old, my sister and I, now Deborah is one year and four days older than I am, uh, so I've always had two mothers, uh, <laughs> you know, but she's older, and so we're sitting in church. She's 10, and I'm nine years old. The invitation's given. She goes forward. Well, I, I'm, I just grew up that whatever she does, I do. So she went forward, I went forward. She truly got saved. She was born again. Well, I went through whatever motions they asked me to go through. They even baptized both of us later. I was not saved because basically I did something I didn't understand. And I just did it because somebody else did it. And it was a short two years later. Now we're at our home church in Cincinnati, another large church. We're sitting toward the back of this big auditorium. And I remember our whole family's there. And boy, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. And I realized that what I had done was not real. I was just 11 years old. I went all the way forward in that great big church. And somebody knelt down with me, took the scripture, led me to the Lord. And I knew that I had gotten saved. And I remember walking out of church afterwards thinking to myself that verse or that, that phrase, white as snow. He's washed me white as snow. And I thought, that, that is right. But you know, about 15 or 16 years old, I forget exactly the, the age, but for some reason as a teenager then, I began to doubt again. And I began to think, you know, well, am I, did I do it right even that time? And so my mother, my godly mother, uh, the one with the dictionary, you know, my, my mother sat down with me on the couch, and I could take you to the very room and the very place we were sitting. And I said, Mom, I, I just am not sure I'm saved. She looked at me and said, I have no doubt in my mind that you are saved. Now, something about that clicked, and I've never doubted it since. But you know what she was saying? I've watched your life from 11 years old to now. I've seen God work in your life. Uh, you have the fruits of it. I have no doubt about it. There's just something about that confidence of, oh, that's right. That's what the Bible says. That's, that's what happened. Old things have passed away, and all things are becoming new. So I've not doubted it since. But since then, of course, in my life, and I think in yours too, we get strengthened then by our faith. And we know more, and we grow more, and we study God's Word, and we, have, we understand both uh, security and we understand assurance. Now, take your bulletin, and you have an outline on that, or on the screen you have this outline. Let me go over four things that I think are important in this subject about assurance. One is, I just want you to understand that there are different views on, on assurance, for sure, among Christian people and among some that maybe aren't Christian. But first of all, of course, there is that view that there is no assurance about it at all. 
I picked out two verses because these things remind me of it. Nicodemus, you know, said to Jesus, how can these things be? There are people who just say, how can you have assurance? How can these things be? The, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch said, uh, how can I understand except somebody show me? Somebody explain it to me. And so there are ways that you have no assurance. Well, let me say, first of all, liberalism has no assurance. Those who don't even preach the gospel, those who don't believe the word of God, who might deny that Jesus was even God in the flesh or might deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, there can be no assurance there because there's no salvation. If, if there's no true salvation, uh, then there can't be assurance. Uh, they're religious people and talk of godly things all the time, but don't even know Christ as Savior. There's another reason, and theologically we would call this Arminianism, as opposed to Calvinism. Arminianism uh, started named after a man named John, James Arminius, but basically these are denominations and others that have come from that time, way back to the 1600s, come from this time, that believe that if you have salvation, you can lose it. And uh, you might have it, but if, if you sin, especially sin without repentance of it, then you have lost your salvation. Now, there's, there's the old kind called Wesleyan Arminianism, because John Wesley preached the gospel and people got saved under his ministry, but he did believe you could lose it. You could lose it if you sin. There's also a Reformed Arminianism, which nowadays is the, these are reformed that, and Calvin or I mean Arminius himself was a reformed thinker they believe you can give it back so if you have salvation just as you freely took it you can freely give it back or as they say uh, you can go out the same door you came in <laughs> so there's that idea that uh, if you decide I don't believe this anymore I don't want to be a Christian anymore and you apostatize, as the word is, you can give it back. Let me stop here and say something about a common word, and that's the word legalism. I kind of have the, this, this burr under my saddle always with the word legalism. Legalism is keeping law, right? Legal and law. And in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the only real definition of legalism is someone who either works to get saved or someone who works to stay saved because they're afraid they're going to lose it. That is biblical legalism. Now, we've, we've stolen that term and use it for anyone we disagree with. So, so if you disagree with somebody's standards on the Christian life, you call them a legalist or, or whatever. It's really not a biblical definition. Legalism is, are you work, did you work to get your salvation? Do you have some legal way, lawful way that you can get saved? And not only that, then do you have to work to stay saved? Can you lose it if you don't work? That's what legalism is. And so Arminianism and its various forms uh, would be that. And there, there are many denominations, Christian denominations, who believe you can lose your salvation. So uh, it's very widespread. Secondly, there's a false assurance. Titus 1.16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, unto every good work reprobate. Last night I was reading in the book of Isaiah, and, and uh, God said, They swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. There are many that do that. Make false professions of faith. 
That is, they, they did something like I did at nine years old for some reason, and they weren't sincere or didn't know what they were doing or didn't believe correctly. You know, I, I remember somebody a few years ago studying this kind of thing, and he was talking about the city of Chicago. And he went back more than now almost 150 years from the days of D.L. Moody. And he said, you know, if, every, if all the people who said they were converted under D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, who started out in Chicago, and Jack Hiles, and all of the other the, the churches and movements and all came from them, they said if everybody's profession of faith were true, Chicago would have been converted two times over. <laughs> but obviously not everyone who made a profession of faith in the last 150 years, even in that city, were truly born again. There's a movement today called Free Grace. Sounds good. They preach grace, but they also say this. You don't have to repent to be saved. That would be a work. If you, if you try to repent of your sins and sorry for your sins, that would be some kind of work. There is no carnality, so if you're saved and, uh, and you think you're doing sin, there's no sin for the Christian. You can do what you want to do. And uh, you can't even give it up if you want to give it up. You, if you walk away and deny Christ, sorry, you're still saved. So this free grace, as they call it, uh, to me has no assurance. How does a person like that even know? that they have true salvation, no repentance, no carnality, and the rest. And then, folks, I say there are, there's a lot of contemporary movement today that I think is not helping us. Uh, as church become an entertainment venue for many people? We try to kind of mimic the world and what they're doing and their concerts and the rest, and we do the same. And you can occasionally attend. If you attend once a week and that's all, you've really been a faithful attender and most of them don't even do that. And there are no invitations given, usually no soul winning done because all of that would be a work for salvation. And so even in the contemporary churches, I think I'm not sure how a person can have assurance of their salvation and live in a Christianity like that. Well, I say thirdly here, there's a real assurance in the Bible. We're gonna talk about it this morning. Second Timothy 1.12, we sang this song a few minutes ago Paul said, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Notice these words. For I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. How could he say it stronger than to give us those, those four words? And by the way, the word commit there, I've committed unto him. Paratheke is a word that means I've made the deposit. If you go down to the bank and you take your money and fill out a deposit slip and you hand it to the cashier, you have made a deposit with the bank. That word means to trust. It means to guard. You have handed it to them in trust that they will guard what you've committed to them, what you've deposited to them. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he says that I have that which I've committed to him against that day would be until that day. Now, Peter picks up on this very word in 1 Peter 4, 19, and he says it this way, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, here's our word, commit the keeping of their souls to him as unto a faithful creator. Commit the keeping is paratheke. 
I have committed the keeping of my soul to the creator of all things, is what Peter's saying. Do that. Commit your soul to him. In other words, what is more powerful than a creator? You know, who can keep what you've deposited in their account more than the creator of everything? And Peter says, then I've committed the keeping of my soul, and Paul says, uh, to a faithful creator. So, one other thought before we leave this first, uh, this first uh, point, and that is, you know, we always kind of get the blame from those who believe you can lose your salvation that uh, we preach a license to sin. You know, if you, somebody will say, well, if I believe that I can't lose my salvation, that whatever I do, it doesn't matter, I'm still saved, then uh, you just think you can go out and do anything. You can commit any sin, and uh, you're still saved. How do you answer that? Well, yes and no. <laughs> the fact is, David committed adultery and committed murder, still saved. But do you go out and just purposely commit sin, knowing that uh, you're just going to, you know, kind of uh, put it, God, God, you said it, and so that's what I'm going to do. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible says uh, very clearly that Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, should we sin that grace may abound? And I like the old words, God forbid, he says. Sin that grace may abound? God forbid that anyone would think like that. And then in, in verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, God forbid. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, some say, let us do evil that good may come. And it's kind of like, well, I'll go out and do evil so that the grace of God gets to be applied to me. And he says, whose damnation is just, whose judgment from God is just if they think like that. And so, of course, we don't think like that. If somebody is thinking like that, I really would doubt that they had true salvation, that they want to go sin, that they can't wait to because now that they're saved forever. No. The reason why this truth is real is because we all do sin in one way or another, and when we sin, we need to have that confidence that even though we have sinned, uh, God has forgiven us. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Secondly, questions to ask. So I think as we come to, you come to your uh, assurance of your salvation, here are three questions out of probably many, but, but three I think you should ask. Number one, have you had a salvation experience? Now, I'm serious about this, and I think it's very important, and I think it's something that too many people ignore. Folks, salvation happens immediately, and it happens once. It isn't a gradual thing that kind of takes a year to develop, uh, though conviction and all of that. But when you give yourself to Jesus Christ, that happens instantly, and it cannot be repeated. And so what I'm asking is, do you know when that happened? Do you have that salvation experience? You know, in Acts 16, here's the Philippian jailer. You know, when God has shaken the earth with the earthquake and the prisoners are released, his life is in danger. He comes to Paul and Silas and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you know what they said? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And guess what? He was. And he went home and told his old house about it. And they all got saved and Paul baptized every one of them. 
what must I do to be saved? The same question was asked at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and Peter said, repent, because repentance and, so, and, and faith is the same thing. As a matter of fact, in that same context of Acts chapter 2, repent, receive, believe, be saved, all mean the same thing, all referring to exactly the same thing that happened to those believers on that day. And as we read the rest of the book of Acts, you'll have these terms. They were converted. They heard the word. They turned to God. They obeyed the gospel. They attended unto the things that were spoken. All of those kinds of words mean, when did you do that? When were you saved? Now, I'm not saying you have to have written it on the calendar so you know what you know, month and day and, and year and so forth, but you know what happened. You know that happened to you. I'm going to come back to that, to that uh, thought in just a minute. Let me go on to the other two first. Do you see a change in your life? I talked, <laughs> that's what my mother had said to me that time. But here's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Here's the statement. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You notice I'm reading the, the old version, so hang with me. But notice two words here. First of all, old things are passed away. Now, in that language, that's called an aorist tense, which means that happened immediately. Old things passed away. When you came to Christ and got saved, you're a new creature in Christ. You're a child of God, and old, the old life is gone at that moment. Then he says, all, and uh, all things are become new is a perfect tense, which means all things now are becoming new. Not everything happens at once. Though you were saved at once, though you were saved at a particular time, you've grown up. You've grown in the Lord. You may have had a lot of bad habits, language and lusts and whatever when you first got saved. God has taken those away from you, and it may have taken a while sometimes to, for you to put those old sins away. Well, what I'm saying is there's a change in your life. We're not, we're not perfect. Uh, you know, we, we don't all of a sudden become perfect. Neither is there some kind of second blessing, by the way, where, okay, down the road somewhere, I found the secret and I applied this secret and now all of a sudden I'm good and I don't sin anymore or some, some crazy thing like that. But neither is it flatlined. You don't get saved with no evidence, no growth. Anything that's alive grows, unlike my garden. Anything that's alive grows and if, there, if there's life there, it, something happens, something grows, something comes of it. So the, the common picture of the Christian life is, here's the moment of salvation. The, put the cross here. Here's the moment of salvation, and you go upward. But that upward is not a straight line. It's up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. But finally, you're up here where you should be today. Now, you're higher. You have grown. You have put away old things, other things have become new, but it is an up and down process. You sinned in there, you backslid a little bit, you disobeyed some, but you didn't lose it, and slowly you got better, and that's the way the Christian life looks like. So do you see a change in your life? And then thirdly, I say, do you have a concerned heart? What does your heart tell you? What does your conscience tell you? Your heart's been changed. Your conscience has been renewed and washed. Revelation 2.4, of course, is, 
is the letter to the church at Ephesus, Christian people. But the Lord says to them, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left what? Thy first love. You've grown cold. You're not what you used to be. The things of God don't excite you anymore. And, and the instruction to that church and those people then is, remember from where you are falling, repent of that, redo what you used to do, or else I'll come and remove your candlestick, which means not that you've lost your salvation, but I can't use you anymore. And we don't want to be like that. And so when we find out our heart has grown cold, which, folks, is the seat of affection, isn't it, in the Christian life? The, the Lord lives there. The Holy Spirit lives in there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love him. We love him because he first loved us. We know we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And let us provoke one another to love and good works. I mean, love is the, is the key ingredient to the Christian life. And so if, you have, if he's in you and your heart has grown cold, turn around. Go back the other way. Now, I wanted to say one more thing about the salvation experience. I'm concerned about this because I, I think that we're growing into a time right now where we ignore this, and, and we're so afraid uh, that we might be doing the wrong thing, some legalistic thing by, by asking someone to receive Christ as Savior that we just don't do it, and we think that somehow people will kind of grow into it, develop into it. Something will happen by osmosis. Something will happen the way. Now, you know, I, I, think, I think that the Pentecostals have done the wrong thing going the other way, and that is you come forward to be saved. Well, you got to pray through. you got to labor. you got to, you know, the morning bench, and you got to uh, do this until God blesses you, and then the light comes on. Well, then now you are kind of working at it. If, if you struggle enough, God will save you. That's not what the salvation experience is. But on the other hand, to say that leading someone to Christ is somehow the wrong thing to do, that it's somehow some kind of a work of salvation. And if you say to somebody, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, well, then that's a, that's a good work, and you can't ask somebody to do it. And so what has happened, I think, is that, that uh, all, then experience, uh, all of that becomes experience, and to them, it's all legalism. And so there's no invitations given in churches like that. There's no soul winning done in churches like that. Uh, and I think at that point, we then don't know when the salvation experience was, if it even was. And so if you attend church long enough, you join. If you kind of keep coming and, and being with us long enough, we'll count you as a Christian. And so where was the salvation experience? And as I said, it has to happen. That new birth happens at a moment, and then it's done. I read to you Spurgeon's uh, testimony last week where he described that moment he got saved in that little uh, Methodist church on that snowstorm morning, and he said it was like a flash of lightning. It was done, and it's never been undone. And that's true. Now, I think... Folks, we are called evangelical slash fundamentalists. The word fundamentalist is a good term that's also been robbed and stolen by, by society today. 
But uh, basically, it, w it came about 100 years ago by some people saying, let's go back to the fundamentals of the Word of God. Let's go back to what the Bible says, because you had liberals saying the Bible's not God's Word, and the, the miracles never happened, and the rest. Fundamentals said, so let's go back to the fundamentals. That's where the Word came from. But we are also what's called evangelical, which means we preach good news. We preach a gospel, and we go ask people to accept it. And there is what they have called an ethical element, a volitional element. You have, there's a time where you receive it of your will, and you say, I will accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. My great theology professor, Myron Houghton, some of you knew Dr. Houghton, who, who was more of a Calvinist than I am, but he used to refer to John 20, 30, 31 for this very thing. He would say, many other signs did truly Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Then he says, but these are written in the, in the gospel of John. These are written that you might believe on the name of the son or believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And then it says, and that believing you might have life through his name. And Myron would say, you have to believe that believing then you have life. There's that ethical, evangelistic, soul-winning time when a person gets saved. Ann and I have a hobby of reading out of a book before dinner when we're about to eat dinner, and then we pray for one of our kids each night at, at dinner time. Last night, we read from A.W. Tozer, reading a book of his, and he said this, the individual man or woman must make a choice, and at that point, we must be dogmatic. We better hang on to that, or we may see a whole generation. I read statistics last night in another book of statistics of how many kids grow up in church and then become teenagers or adult and walk away from it all, and why. I think a big reason is maybe they were never saved because they were never led to Christ. So we have to be careful. I've said that all along. We have to be careful when we lead children to Christ or young people, but we better lead them to Christ because you come to Christ at a specific time. All right, number three, reasons to doubt. Well, there are reasons why doubt comes into your mind, and here are three of those reasons, and a big one is because of sin. When, when you commit sin as a Christian, you can sin, and when sin comes into your life, you're mixed up. And Satan's got a, a foothold in you. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit is offended by your sin. And you're kind of in a, a pickle when you're that way. Romans 6, 13. Neither, he's speaking to believers. You remember no reckon and yield in, in, in Romans 6? Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves as unto God as those who are alive from the dead. That's what you are. You're alive from the dead. Don't yield to the old. Yield to the new. And that is Jesus Christ as your Lord. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion under you. You're not under law, but under grace. And in verse 21 of 6, he says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. And then he says, what fruit had you of those things? You are now ashamed. The end of those things is death. You should be ashamed of those things. Now, folks, let me, let me remind you of this truth. Before you got saved, you had one nature, and that's a sinful nature. 
You didn't have Christ. You weren't born again. You weren't made into a new creature. You were lost. You had, the, you had the sinful nature you inherited from Adam and Eve all the way back to their sin. For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. The reason you're dying is because of sin. You only had one nature. But when you got saved, you got a new nature. But your old one didn't go away. Now you have two natures. You have that old one until resurrection. You have that old one until you die. And finally, when death comes, the old one stays in the grave, and only the new one comes out. Praise the Lord for that. But until then, you have two. And so the fact is, the old nature is like an old king who used to reign. And he used to rule the hearts, the, the hallways of your castle. And then all of a sudden, he's deposed, or he's old and retired, and a new king comes. Now you have a new king. But the old guy's still there. And he's walking around in the hallway of your castle, and uh, he has no authority. He, he can't tell anybody to do anything, but he walks up to you and gives you a command, and you know what? You go do it. Shine my boots. You don't have to shine his boots, but you're so used to hearing his voice. You're so used to his old commands that even when you hear that deposed king, you follow what he says, and you don't have to. That's the old nature in you. He has no authority. You don't have to listen to him. You have a new king you can listen to who will give you the strength to do it. Don't listen to the old man anymore. So don't go that way. Commission of sin will bring doubt into your life, and he will rule over you. Now, in this, kind of the other side of that coin is you can begin to omit things that are good and that you ought to do, and by omitting these uh, then you, you will find yourself doubting many things. Here's the way Jude put it. These things, or uh, these uh, be they who separate themselves. He's talking about unbelievers. They're sensual. They don't have the spirit. But you, beloved, speaking to believers, you, beloved, number one, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. Number three, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Number four, look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How, and he could have gone on dozens of things on that list. Let me give you some. Do you read your Bible? How do you think God talks to you if you don't read his word? Are you, look, are you listening for some voice to come out of the clouds? Are you looking for some handwriting on the wall? No. No. You have to read his word. God speaks to you. How, how can you say you know what God wants and you know what his will is for you? You know how you ought to live your life, but you never read it. Secondly, do you pray? I, I, I mean, I suppose you thank God for your food. Is that it? Is that all you do? Well, we pray in church, yeah, but is that it? How do you speak to God? If, if you don't even listen to God speaking to you, how do you speak to God if you don't pray? How do you ask him for things? How do you get his help? How do you have fellowship with him? Number three, do you witness? Are, are you able to express your faith to somebody else if, the, if this situation comes up? I'm, you know, doesn't always come up, but it might. Or are you kind of embarrassed about that? Or you don't have any ability to do it? There's, I tell you, there's something strengthening in our faith when we tell it to somebody else. There's nothing like gives us confidence in our faith when we can express that to somebody we know who needs it, that will strengthen you. And I say lastly, do you have a church? Do you stay around God's people? 
Do you stay around the body of Christ? You are, you are part of the bride of Christ. Don't you like her? <laughs> don't you love her? You go up to a friend and say, boy, I really like you, but you know what? I don't like your fiancé at all. <laughs> you, you wouldn't make a very good friend, would you? You are part of the bride of Christ. Stay around her. These are the best things in life, Bible reading, prayer, witnessing, church. You know, if those are the best things in life, let's just do them 100% of the time. But, of course, you can't. But to undo it, not do them at all will not give you the strength for all those other times in life uh, that you have to face. So the omission of good things gives us doubt. And thirdly, the submission to error. Listen to the wrong people. You're under the wrong teaching. So 1 Timothy 1.4 says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. You listen to the wrong teachers, all it does is bring up questions in your mind rather than edify you. As a matter of fact, he's, Paul says to Titus, they, sub, they subvert whole houses. They come in and have Bible studies and the rest and subvert whole houses. Don't listen to the wrong voice. Folks, there are so many voices these days. Our generation has what past generations never had. If I ask you to, everybody sitting here today could pull out that little device that's in your pocket or your purse called your cell phone, and within seconds you could be listening to any voice in the world. And most of them would not be worth listening to. But we listen all the time. Audio is one thing. Visual is even worse because of the visual things that, that are on that. God gave us pastors, teachers, leaders, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, go where you know you can trust and listen. And I'm not saying don't listen to things on your, on your computer or on your phone. There are good things out there to listen to. But for every good thing, I'll bet you there's nine that you shouldn't be listening to. That's what I'm saying. Be discerning about these things. Now, I, I, I want to I give this illustration. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put three people up here on the platform. I'm going to be the mall. Over here on this side is a Christian. Here's Mr. Christian over here. He's a truly born-again person, all right? Over here is Mr. Lost person. He's lost. He doesn't know Christ as his Savior. Saved, lost. In Christ, in the flesh. Now, I'm going to put a person in the middle, and he's Mr. Carnality. Now, which side does he belong to, that side or this side? Here's the problem. This lost person is carnal. He lives carnal. He tries to pretend to be believing now and then, but he's carnal. Is that him? Well, yes, but Mr. Christian, though he's right with God, can be carnal. And so this is Mr. Christian also. And my point is this. Mr. Carnality in the middle, you don't know if he's lost or saved. You can't tell the difference. It may be a lost person who's carnal all the time, and you're watching carnality, and you don't know if that's his real nature. Or, that. or it might be a Christian who's really saved, and now he's living like the devil, and he's truly saved, but when you look at him, you don't know. Now, the reason I'm giving you that is don't, live, don't leave your testimony in such a place. You may even have confidence that you're truly saved when you sin and when you get off kelter, but no one else knows. 
You know the difference between those two? The Christian who's the carnal man will be under conviction and he'll be miserable and he'll repent of it and get back out of it. And the lost person who's Mr. Carnality never feels it, never knows the difference, doesn't have any conviction, any conscience about it. He'll stay like that the rest of his life. Don't let people see Mr. Carnality. Let them see Mr. or Mrs. Christian. Lastly, just briefly, three ways to know this. One is by your testimony. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let people see. Tell it. Say, this is who I am. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. By your words, by your actions, by the rest. And if you do that, uh, you will be showing Christ in your life. And, you know, there are some very basic things. Number one, have you been baptized? Right? Why did you get baptized? First command in Scripture. First thing you're supposed to do. The first outward testimony that I'm saved, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Have you ever been? Never done that? Never taken the Lord's Supper that you belong to the body and blood of Christ? Never done that? Never been part of a local church where God's people are, where, which is the bride of Christ? Do it by testimony. Do these things because you're a Christian. You'll have assurance. Secondly, by evidence. Now, I could do a whole message. We started in 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. But, you know, when you go through the whole book of 1 John then, here's what he does. When you keep his commandments, you know that you have eternal life. Chapter 2, verse 3. When you love the brethren and sistren, you know that you have eternal life. When you don't love the world, you know that you have eternal life. When you are yielding to the Spirit of God, you know that you have eternal life. When you see your prayers being answered, you know that you have eternal life. All in the book of 1 John. That's why one of the best places to go, if you doubt, go to the book of 1 John. And if you see those things in your life, it will give you confidence because you see the evidence of the work of God in your life. And lastly, simply by assurance. I like three expressions that the New Testament gives. In Acts 17, 31, he hath given assurance to all men. You should have assurance of eternal life. But in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, our gospel came unto you in much assurance. Not just assurance, but much assurance. And then Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can grow from just assurance, that is, you just kind of know it, you know what the Bible says, to much assurance in your life, to where you have full assurance in your life. And we ought to grow into those things. What should you do if you're at a place where you don't know? You remember the name Matthew Henry, don't you? <laughs> I love old Matthew Henry. He was a Puritan and, 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 a, and a Calvinist. But he said this in the, in the 1600s. Are you in doubt about your spiritual state? He says, put the matter out of doubt by a present consent, dash, dash. If I never did it, I do it now. <laughs> Matthew Henry's advice. You've never asked Jesus to save you? Well, I'll do it right now then. I'll ask him to save me right now. I remember being in Russia with my father-in-law and brother-in-law back in 1990. And the Soviet Union had just fallen, and, 
and uh, uh, you know everything was kind of the same, but it wasn't. You know the power was gone, and I remember Ann's dad preaching. Uh, I remember a number of these, but but this time he's preaching at this. It, it, they called it a cultural center, and uh, like theater seats on a stage, and and the people are packed in there and standing around. And Ann's dad is preaching, and he's preaching in there, preaching in Russia because this was in uh, in Moscow, I think. And in the middle of his sermon, this big old guy stands up. I'm sitting down front with Sam, and I can't, I don't know the language, so he's having to kind of translate for me. And uh, this guy, he's a huge guy with a white beard and white hair, a red checkered shirt and red suspenders. I thought, Santa Claus is here. <laughs> he stands up in the middle of the service, and he stops the service. And Ann's dad stopped. And this fellow says, what are you, try, what are you telling us to do? And I thought, this is perfect. And sure enough, Peter and his dad, being, being the kind of man he was, his whole sermon changed. Sam's kind of tracking it for me. And he said kind of, I'm glad you asked that. Let me tell you what I'm asking you to do. And he told them how to be saved. And there was a great group of people got saved after that service. Sometimes we just say, what are you telling me to do? And then you do it. And when we come to Christ like that, then we can know we have eternal life and be saved. I hope that you know the Lord is your Savior. Stand now with me, if you will, as we stand and prepare to sing a song here in our auditorium. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, listening to this message, perhaps uh, live stream, I ask you to receive Christ as your Savior by full knowledge, repenting of your sins and asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You can do that now. Let's pray to here. Father, thank you for the assurance we have of eternal life. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for the evidences. Thank you, Father, for that moment of salvation where life came into us and that new nature and that Savior that we have. And so, Father, we just pray, first of all, that you would give us the, the full assurance that we ought to have as, as believers. And secondly, Father, for those who, who have doubts because they can't see the reality of it, I pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself today by the conviction of your spirit and cause them to receive Christ as Savior. So, Father, bless as we sing, bless as this message goes out, and I know not from my voice only, but from, from many voices today. May a great uh, multitude of people be saved because of the gospel. Well, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in a song as we do. Our invitation is always op open as we sing. And I'm at the front, and you can come uh, even as we sing. But even after we're uh, uh, closed and others are leaving, I'm still here. If you know you need help with any of these things, see me after the service, and we'll get that taken care of. So Kent, come and lead us.